Hi, this is Chase Masterson, Lita from Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and today I'm going to answer your questions on Trek Untold. Welcome to Trek Untold, the podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Typically, this show is about spotlighting guests who have contributed to Star Trek, but who aren't a part of the main cast, or as I like to put it, people who aren't in the opening credits. But for this episode, I'm bending that rule a little, but trust me, it's worth it. Today, we have the joy of speaking to the delightful Chase Masterson, aka Lita, from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Lita started out as a guest role and expanded into a recurring character who has since become a fan favorite. Most recently, Chase appeared in the sci-fi parody film Unbelievable, alongside around 40 other Star Trek performers from the original series, Next Generation, DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise, along with Michael Madsen, Robert Davi, and Snoop Dogg. Now with today's episode, I wanted to do something a little bit different with this one. And I decided to make this into more of a Comic-Con experience at home for all you listeners today. So I went out on my social media pages, as well as in a bunch of Star Trek Facebook groups, and asked for you fans out there to submit questions today. And I gotta tell you, I was not disappointed. You guys responded in full force. So if you are one of those people who asked a question when I put it out there, chances are you're gonna hear it answered today. So stick around, Chase and I cover a lot of ground, and she's got a ton of great stories that you just might have never heard before. Before we jump into our interview, I want to remind everyone to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trek Untold. And that's all one word, no spaces. You can also support this show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you want to check out some of our merch and put Trek Untold on a shirt, hoodie, mug, sticker, or something else, head on over to teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold to proudly display how much you like this podcast. And if you do happen to get some Trek Untold merch, go ahead and tag us on social media and let us know you got it. We'd love to see it. But most of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and to leave a rating and a review. There is a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, as I'm sure you already know, and leaving ratings and reviews helps people find us when they're searching for these types of shows. If you're already following us or offering your support in whatever way you can, be it a follow, review, monetarily, or even just listening today, thank you for the help. There's a family of Star Trek podcasts out there, and we appreciate you joining us here each and every week on the show. I'd also like to make a quick shout-out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D-printed Star Trek-inspired products for toys and people. But you'll hear more about them a little bit later on in the show. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Affirmative. Initiating program. And we are back on Trek Untold, and joining us now on the show, her character on D-Space 9 began as a simple Davo girl on a space station orbiting her home world, but by the end of the series, she was the wife of the Grand Nagus and mother to the first Ferengi in Starfleet. That was Lita from Star Trek D-Space 9, and today I've got the extreme pleasure of introducing the multi-talented and always ravishing Chase Masterson. Chase, how are you today? Thank you so much, Matthew. What a lovely intro, and I'm well, and such a pleasure to be doing your show. Uh, thank you so much. We're so glad to have you here today, and 
you know, today we're going to be in particular talking about a lot of fan-submitted questions we've got, but before we discuss your time in Deep Space Nine, uh, we got to talk about some current events, because you just starred in the film Unbelievable, alongside Tim Russ, Garrett Wang, and a marionette named Kirk Stillwood, <laughs> along with 40 <laughs> other cast members yeah. from across the Star Trek universe. So, uh, yeah, Chase, can you tell us a little, a little bit about how you got involved in Unbelievable? Well, thanks. I was a approached for Unbelievable by the casting director who I'd known for many years named Steve Nave. And he was a friend and he told me that this group of uh, this producer and writer director was wanting to bring back the cast of Star Trek to be together and do a movie. And many people have tried and failed, let's say. And um, I just thought, well, that's probably not going to happen. And So I don't think I even returned his call except for like, I just was like, you know, left a message saying, hi, great to hear from you. And, you know, let me know if this happens. And so he called again and said, yeah, it's happening. And then he called again and said, hey, do you want to be a part of this? And I was really surprised that an endeavor like this, you know, was was happening. Obviously, we all love to work together, but it's no small feat to coordinate, um, you know, people and schedules and get a script that the cast would agree to. And as, as it turned out, they really did end up getting quite a, quite a lot of people and uh, just like over 40 cast members. And I think the great thing about doing this piece was that we all got to just hang out and play together. And it's, you know, it's such a spoof. It's such a silly, it's, it's, don't even think comedy when you're seeing it, think spoof. And, and uh, it, it was, you know, it was just a chance to work together again, basically. And we did. And we were treated beautifully by Angelique Fawcett and her uh, husband, who's the writer-director, Stephen Fawcett. And I think this ties back to what you do in terms of your your podcast. As, as you're saying, this celebrates careers that are not necessarily, that are not in the main credits. And, you know, writers and or I, I guess not writers, but cast members and crew members that are not always in the spotlight and unbelievable in that same way brought together a lot of people who had had smaller roles or cameos that, you know, just got to play together. So I I really want to say, I really respect what you're doing with this podcast, Matthew. Uh, You know, so many people pour their lives into this business and yet don't make the big time major, you know, opening credits and are still incredibly talented, lovely, hardworking, fun people and, and, uh, you know, pour their hearts into a show. It's just really nice for you to recognize them. And I'm I'm grateful to be here. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, that's why we do it is, you know, everybody thinks of Patrick Stewart and Jonathan Frakes and all those big names. But again, it's all those folks that we still poked on the show previously and all the ones we're going to speak to soon who really kind of build up the universe. They've really fleshed it out and made Star Trek really what it is just as much as the main crew. So I, I appreciate the kind words. So in Unbelievable, most of your scenes are with Tim and Garrett, who are both Voyager alumni. They spent seven years working together side by side every day. What was it like for you to work with these folks? Because I'm sure you knew them from conventions, but you're from DS9, they're from Voyager. So I imagine they've already got a rapport. You had to kind of work to get one. So did you guys actually click right away or did it take some time to kind of get like a working relationship on screen? Thank you. Great question. Well, actually, 
Garrett was the first person that I knew from a cast of Star Trek, but it was before either one of us were in the cast of Star Trek. I was in a class with him about 20 years ago. Well, no, wait, more than that. Really, before I was on Deep Space Nine, before he was on Voyager, Garrett and I were in class. Ten people in a city of 12 million people, and three of those people were Garrett, me, and Jonathan Del Arco, who played Hugh DeBoer, oh, wow. of course, from Next Gen. Yeah, and now Picard. And it was um, really just extremely interesting because Jonathan was on the show and he would also come to go to conventions and he would come to class on Monday nights and tell us of this convention that he got to go to where he would meet fans and go to some wonderful place and be a, uh, and that he was a part of this incredible show that meant so much to so many people. And that really struck me. And so Deep Space Nine is the one show I prayed to be on, that I wanted to be on, that I targeted being on. And that led me to meet the casting director for Star Trek, which was Ron Surma. And I, um, I, I could tell you the story about getting on the show, but basically I knew Garrett for a very long time. I also knew Tim, uh, partly because the cast of Deep Space Nine and Voyager were concurrent. We would run into each other on the lot and all that. Um, but also because I had done Star Trek of Gods and Men with Tim directing. And, you know, we all know each other so well from conventions. I've sung with Tim's band. Um, you know, we're all good friends. We know each other as well as we've known each other if we were on the same show. So um, it didn't take any warm-up time. Um, we fell into it rather quickly, and it was it was a lot of fun. Now, in the film, you're around, again, all sorts of different crew members from the Star Trek universe, but there's one person in particular who uh, kind of exists outside the Star Trek universe. That'd be Snoop Dogg, and he's the main villain of the film. Uh, did you get a chance to actually interact or meet Snoop Dogg? No, I did not. I was already wrapped out, um, which is interesting because I'm the female lead, but I was finished shooting when they hired Snoop Dogg. We had no idea he was going to be in this movie. Um you know, soup. Um, you know, there's 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 a there's a big difference between celebrities and heroes. And while Snoop may be a celebrity, I I find it interesting that he is the villain because uh, I I I don't I'm not crazy about the work he's done in the real world, but he does a good job in this movie. And he's the villain overtaking the world with plants, which could be a metaphor, could be an anti-drug <laughs> metaphor. I don't know. But bottom line is, I no, I did not meet Snoop Dogg. I did not work with him. Oh, that's an interesting way to look at the character, though. I like that. <laughs> so, as I mentioned at the start of this week before this episode, I posted in a ton of different Facebook groups. I put it on our Trek and Toad social media pages that I was going to be talking to you, and we got a ton of fan-submitted questions, mostly about D-Space 9, and for any of you listeners out there who aren't aware you know, please make sure you're following Trek Untold on social because this is going to be the way you find out about whenever these random things like that happen. So, yeah, we're doing this basically Comic-Con style because, again, we're in the middle of this COVID pandemic and Comic-Cons are canceled until who knows when. So I'm giving you guys a chance yeah. to talk to Chase here today. So uh, before we jump into our fan questions, though, you know, I got a question for you, Chase, and this is Trek Untold. We dig into the past of our guests' careers and I found one of your earliest roles, and that was Robin Hood Men in Tights. You were a giggling girl. Yeah. <laughs> and anybody who's got a Hulu, you can see that uh, around 26 minutes into the film. You're standing next to King Richard, who was played by Richard Lewis. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience in that film and uh, if you got to work with Mel Brooks at all during that time? It was a blast and a wonderful experience, and I did work with Mel Brooks. We had some wonderful interactions. So the way I got cast in that was it was an open call, which is insane to think of. A, 
a, a classic director like Mel Brooks having an open call. But he really was there and available to bring people in and meet them and just kind of see what chemistry happened. And he and I had great chemistry. We just, we, I don't know, somehow we made each other laugh. And <laughs> I, that was even at the audition. I'll never forget it. And he cast me as Lady Godiva in this movie. And then I got a call a few weeks later saying, we wrote out that role, but we're going to look for something else for you. And I thought, oh, no, that's a kiss of death. I mean, we're, we're going to look for something is, you know, so vague. And I thought, that's not going to happen unless what can I do? how to get to Mel Brooks' heart, I got to make him laugh. So I got this scroll because it was Robin Hood. I actually made a scroll. My sister and I made it with a parchment and um, rods from Home Depot and tassels. And I wrote this one word. There once was an actress named Chase who had a quite pliable face. Lead supporting orbit. She was a sure hit. Mr. Brooks, you must find me a place. <laughs> and he did. He wrote this role for me, um, which was termed giggling court lady, but uh, in, in, the actual, um, in the actual script, I had several lines and uh, was, you know, it was basically Richard Lewis's main squeeze there. Um, then what happened next was the most endearing part. I was at the, uh, walking into the premiere and Mel was across the room and somehow he saw me come in and he scurried over. And he said, Chase, Chase, Bubala, I got to tell you, there's good news and there's bad news. And I said, oh, my gosh, well, hi, what, what's, the, what's the news, Mel? And he said, well, the good news is, no, he said, the bad news is you got cut out because the jokes were too timely. It was something about Richard Lewis being a fresh prince. And he thought Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was just too, too they thought it was too time, uh, you yeah. know, time sensitive, whatever. And he said, well, that's the bad news. Uh, um, the good news is I let you, I kept you in just a little bit so you could get paid. <laughs> and, and sure enough, he left me in with a giggle, which means that I had basically a line, which means that I got paid residuals. <laughs> oh, nice. So basically everybody who's got Hulu right now, turn on Robin Hood Men and Tights and just keep refreshing it. Watch it again and again for a few days. Just leave it on the background. Get to chase some residuals. Yeah, I'm just... I was honestly just so blown away that a person like Mel Brooks or anyone really, but especially someone like him would be so kind and wonderful and incredible. And there's nothing else I can say. I'm just blown away by that still. Now, do you remember anything about the part of Lady Godiva? Because I imagine that sounds like it's going to have you wearing a very little wardrobe. It sounds like it was wearing nothing, basically. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was a it was a PG film, so I'm sure I would have been wearing, you know, wearing any private parts. Um, I think that you know it would have been fun, but it certainly you know it's just about working with Mel Brooks. I don't care what it what the role was. <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead and jump into some fan questions because we got a ton of those. And man, so many people want to know all these different things about Lita and your time on the set of D Space Nine. So uh, let's start things off here with Ian Anthony Chalice. And he wanted to know about the role of Lita and the potential for expansion of that character. Did you think you were going to actually have this more deeply invested role in the series? Or was it always just going to kind of be maybe an extra face in the background? Well... I don't think Lita was an extra face in the background, but um, at the beginning, I thought Lita was just going to be one scene, four lines in one episode. Uh, that was all there was. And that was fine with me. 
was a lovely guest star role on a, an incredible series. Um, Rick Berman came down to set that day. That was a day they were also shooting this other actress, Barry Hockwald. And I thought Barry was phenomenal. She came on, I, I forget what the character exactly was, but she had something to do with Sid also as his character this year. And I thought she was phenomenal and beautiful, a fine actress. And when I realized that Rick Berman was down on a set that day, people were saying he never comes here. This is so rare. This is a really good sign for either you or Barry. And I thought, well, it's going to be Barry. And I am, I was shocked and grateful to hear that, that they were bringing Lita back. And um, I found that out when they called me for my wardrobe bidding for the second episode, which was Facets, where I played one of Dax's hosts. And playing one of Dax's hosts meant that I was in the in the groove there, in in the world, you know. Um, Curzon Dax being someone that uh, I don't know that apparently was somehow tied in and that Lita was tied in in that way um, more than just a double girl and then with the Bar Association which was my third episode um, it, it became clear that Lita was um, was part of the gang there and I heard later from Ira Bear that it was in that third episode Bar Association that Lita and Rom were set up to become a couple when Rom was uh you know, duly upset about the mistreatment of the laborers and quarks and he was standing up with him for all of us. And I thought that was an incredible episode, partly because of the um partly because of, of the social justice element of the of the union, uh workers' rights and, and partly because of the sweetness and the strength that Rom showed and the connection that he and Lita had. And anyway, uh it there you go. The rest is history. Uh, we never had contracts. Neither Max or I were under contract, so they could have killed us off at any time. Um, so we always just considered it a huge bonus, just gravy when we were called back. It was magical. <laughs> That's great. Now, I think I've got the perfect follow-up for you for that one, because uh, Jamie Michelle Farnick asked, if you were to pick a different character for Lita to marry, who would it have been and why? Oh, wow. What an interesting question a different character for Lita to marry um well everyone wants to marry Data of course <laughs> but obviously that's on a different show um wow on that show um that's such an interesting question because it could go so many ways I mean who knows um Garrick's que- Garrick's uh sexuality was always a bit of a question, but he, he did seem to be uh, an interesting person. I could have married him and had a very different type of storyline. <laughs> um, I don't think there's a lot of others that Lita would have married. Um, be, I don't think she would have married him either. I, you know, I think the appropriate thing is to say, I only had eyes for Rom because he was the guy that was pretty on the inside and that he was so pure hearted and so good and so strong, you know, I mean, he was seen as a weakling because Quark really picked on him and everyone else overlooked him. And yet he was very strong not to retaliate, very strong to still love his brother, even through 
the mistreatment, not that we should ever stand for that, but that he also still had a fondness for his brother that, you know, saw that there was some goodness in Quark. Those are incredibly strong character traits, and Rom had them. And uh, because of that, we just found him very sexy. So, yeah, I only had eyes, eyes for Rom. <laughs> yeah, I think Rom is like one of those really great role models for Star Trek fans who, you know, there's always, you know, there's a lot of men, in, especially who are fans of Star Trek, and a lot of them probably have some troubles with their love life. And Rom is like really the person you should set your, be your example, you know, of what a positive person <laughs> is in, in terms of like, pursuing someone. You know, I mean, good things happen to people, and it's really, it really is about not judging a book by its cover, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, I read that your first kiss ever on screen was actually in Deep Space Nine, and it's in that episode, uh, Dr. Bashir, I presume, which also has got Robert Ricardo in it. I just watched that one before we spoke, in fact. Um, you know, can you actually give us a little bit about uh, that episode and what it was like smooching a Ferengi? Yeah, well, that is a very good question, one that is oft asked. What is it like kissing a Ferengi? First of all, you get your their makeup all over you. Now I know how you guys feel. And, uh, you know, hey, it hurts. No, Tom um, was so sweet with his little snaggle tooth. And um, Max faithfully, loyally kept and treasured those teeth far after Deep Space Nine was over. And he wore them in... Uh, conventions. We used to do something called the Ferengi Family Hour, and he would wear his Ferengi teeth. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it's you know so funny. I know I'm off the subject here, but when he popped those teeth in, he would become Rom. Like his posture would change, his feet would turn out. He would develop that walk, and it, he was just hilarious. It was all about the teeth, babe. Um, <laughs> That episode was is very near and dear to my heart. I have to say that's my favorite episode that I shot in the series, partly because I got to work with the inimitable Bob Picardo. Bob is uh, Bob is a brilliant actor, obviously. He's also in, incredibly intelligent and sharp, just a mile a minute. And he never misses a beat or an opportunity to fill a moment. And so it was really fun with that, seeing him work and working with him and getting the strength in Lita, which occurred in that episode, which was that, you know, Rom would not profess his love. So Lita wasn't going to wait around and pine for him. Lita felt like her love was not being returned. And, you know, whether it was that Rom was too shy or it was just not happening, Dr. Bashir, I'm sorry, Dr. Zimmerman, uh, Picardo made this offer for Lita to go and have her own cafe. And so that sounded a lot better than not being loved by Rom and being treated badly by Quark. So I went off. And so there we go. Um, here's a funny little story about that moment uh, and Bob. So as we was running, uh, going off onto this uh, shuttlecraft with Bob Picardo, leaving Deep Space Nine, never to be seen again, we hear this voice wailing in the distance. Lita! <laughs> Wait! Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> and he says, Lita, uh, 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 I love you. And I say, oh, Rom, as I always said, oh, Rom, and we're going to live happily ever after, right? That's great for us, but not great for poor Bob Picardo, because they hadn't given him an exit line. Now, what is Bob going to do? Just give the scene to us while we kiss and he fades off? Not Bob Picardo. <laughs> Bob went where no actor has ever gone before and asked for an additional line. 
Now, in some shows, you can do that. On Star Trek, it's just a basic rule you don't. Because the writers are so damn good. They, they've already written it as perfectly as it could be. There's nothing else that could be done. And the, 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 the rhythm, the flow of the dialogue is so good. But nevertheless, Bob asked, and it went through all these producers' offices and came back down. Yes, Bob, you can have a line. What would you like to say? He said, let me try a couple things. So the episode that you saw, the cut, was uh, a case that he did, whereas Ram and I are kissing. He follows this alien woman off onto the shuttlecraft, and he says, uh, excuse me, miss, uh, have you heard about my work with Kama Sutra? <laughs> and we all thought was really funny, and that's that's the version that aired. The one that didn't air, which I thought was even funnier, was his first take, which is, as Ram and I were kissing, he follows this woman off onto the shuttlecraft, and he says, excuse me, miss, um, have you heard about my work on Star Trek Voyager? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. So, um, yeah, it was just a blast to work with him. And, you know, I think, my gosh, people that I got to work with and, you know, what a fine cast. This All of Star Trek, really. Such, such fine actors. Absolutely. Uh, Jeff Henning would like to know, are you like any of your characters in real life? Thank you for asking that, Jeff. I would say that, all of us are a little like our characters in real life because we have to be able to imagine on some level what that character is doing. You know, you don't have to be a murderer in order to understand hatred or, you know, you don't have to be a, a actual thief in order to un- understand being covetous, that kind of thing. You know, it's just emotions take place on different scales than they take place on in the grand world of film and TV, you know, emotion um, and action. That said, I hope I'm like Lita. I, I try to be. I think Lita is beautifully compassionate and gentle and kind and also smart. You know, she didn't go up to Bashir and say, hey, baby, let's, you know, have a drink. She went up to him and very demurely and coyly, with elegance, said she might like to see him for a medical uh, issue if he had time and you know that kind of thing told me right off the bat that this is a smart cookie and um Lita didn't wear her intelligence or her strength on her sleeve but I think she ended up being one of the strongest uh a very strong woman strength is not always about warfare or arguing strength can be about standing firm in love and saying I'm going to love you forever. I don't need a prenup. And, you know, as I said to Ram and things like that, you know, so I, um, I just say, you know, Lita is a bit of a role model for me. And, um, and I hope, I hope I'm like her. I I think so. You know, and I think I I agree. Lita and her intelligence, it's kind of not talked about as much. And uh, this kind of really leads me into my next question, because uh, this is from Andrea Levine. And she says that, you, Chase Masterson, are, in particular, of course, are known for being beautiful. Do you get typecast often as just being basically the look because of your beauty? Uh, has that been an empowering thing for you or has it been a setback for, for your career? How has being known for your looks and your body essentially affected your career and has it helped you to better things for other folks? Oh, that's so lovely. Thank you, Andrea. You know, I'll tell you this. Growing up, I was never one of the cute girls, never one of the pretty girls. I was frankly, always the smart girl. I won every spelling bee. I got really good grades. I 
was not popular. I never had a date until I was 19, never went to a football game or a prom or any of the other very high school things that, that people do. So anytime ever anyone says that kind of thing to me, I think, really? Because it's so hard to break those early youth images of ourselves, you know? Um, that said, it's really strange. I've been all over the map on this. I, I'm grateful to have uh, been on Sweeps Week episodes and grateful to have people say nice things and to be on some lists of, you know, these 10 women or these 50 women. That's really nice. I've also been told I'm not cute enough, not pretty enough uh, for this or that TV show. So the one thing I will say about looks is I'm grateful for whatever people see that helps me get to the real stuff. It like it wasn't about Rom's looks, and frankly, he grew to be he was very sexy to me. Um, it, looks only matter in the grand scheme of things, in that they let you get to what's inside. You can be with the most gorgeous guy or girl, and they can be empty and shallow and boring or mean or evil or conniving or valueless or just not treat you well. You know, it's not about that. It's always about who a person is. So in that, I'm grateful for whatever it is that's gotten me the platform to talk about the real things, which are kindness and social justice and the way that we can make a world where we can all live long and prosper the types of stories and themes that Roddenberry stood up for in the 60s, inclusion and social justice and uh, equality. Those are themes that are hugely resonant in my life. And um, I just, I'm glad for whatever's on the outside to be able to open up a conversation about those things that are most important. Oh, that's a great answer. And oh, thank you, Andrea. That's a really lovely thing to say. You know, it's funny. You know, the other thing is there's always going to be something or somebody in Hollywood that's, you know, prettier, more successful, more and more and more. And that can be a very lonely life chasing to be the top one or one of the top ones. You know, it's yeah. It's nice, but it's it, 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 even in this business, it's not everything. So I hope people out there understand that the important things in life are the same things that we can all have, the same things that every single one of you guys can have, you know, which is connection and love and, um, you know, orange juice in the morning or whatever it is that, that you like. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So kind of on this subject of, I guess we'll call it sexuality in Star Trek, you know, this is something I've heard Marina Sirtis talk a lot about in different panels, uh, and that's her quest to get Deanna Troy to wear a proper uniform. Now, what did you think of the outfits you wore, and did you ever have to fight to get any kind of wardrobe that actually covered you up a little bit more? Ah, well, Marina is famous for many things, of course. Um, one thing that we joke about is her coining the term regulation Starfleet bra, <laughs> which is what all of us would have, um, highly padded. Um, uh, none of us are built that way. Um, sorry to, you know, sorry, spoiler alert. Um, in terms of being covered up more, 
Um, I love the sexy outfits that they put Dabo girls in. Um, for me, they put me in more demure outfits because they wanted Lita to be the not bad girl, Dabo girl. Lita was the one that was not doing the work on the side, you know. Um, so they put me in, in outfits that were more that were more covered up already. So I was very happy with how Bob Blackman wardrobed me. Um, he did such a beautiful job with that whole whole thing with the whole show, I think. And your wardrobe has been immortalized as well because yeah, you're actually the first guest we've spoken to who has a Star Trek action figure of yourself, of your character Lita. Uh, and it's a great outfit, yeah. of course, on that figure. But uh, you know, I'm curious what you think about your action figure because she is an action figure, but in particular, this version of Lita, uh, the way she's posed, she doesn't really have the ability to take much action. Well, that is true. I mean, at that point, there wasn't a lot of action for Lita. You know, she had her double wheel and she's got the latinum. Um, the action I was happy about was my fan club made that happen. They uh, did a letter writing campaign and uh, I, I forget who it was, uh, Playmates action figures yep, at that Playmates. time. Yeah. And um, th- then the action figure happened. They only made 30,000. So they were a collector's item. Um, I've, I've come across many and gotten some that are uh, with the low number, you know, collectible. And it's, it's such an honor. They were actually going to come out with the nine inch uh, dressable and undressable version. Oh my. I wasn't so sure about that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not so sure. But um, but I do like my action figure. I'm proud to have one, and um, it's fun. Those are the things of Star Trek that you know you don't you don't get on every other show. You certainly don't get that. I, I I'm so grateful to have been on Star Trek. I often say, my gosh, I could have been on, I don't know, whatever show it was. I don't even remember Walker Texas Ranger or something. <laughs> you know, so grateful for all the fun little things that are included in this incredible piece of work. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or a part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA, and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. If you find yourself listening to your favorite podcast and wondering what microphone they use or how they do their editing, or if you watch a YouTube video and you wonder, what camera is that? Or going one step further, if you're watching Twitch and you're wondering how your favorite Twitch streamer built their rig and if you can do the same, then Toys and Tech of the Trade is for you. Toys and Tech of the Trade is an interview series where we sit down with content creators, entrepreneurs, and discuss the gadgets and gear that they use to create their content and run their businesses. 
we use toys in a broad sense, meaning the stuff that just puts a smile on your face, whether it's action figures to something a little bit more complex like musical instruments, cars. You'd be surprised what people consider their toys. Toys and Tech of the Trade can be found on all major podcast providers, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and of course, Spotify. Feel free to visit us at RageWorksNetwork.com to check us out. We now return to Trek Untold. All right, Chase, so I got a few more fan questions for you. This one's coming to us from Chai Iroh. And Chai wants to know about the episode Bar Association, which we've been talking about already a bit here. Uh, she said she loved your work in particular in that episode, and uh, she wanted to know your favorite part that you did in that episode. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Chai. I appreciate that question. I think it would have to be where Rom was on the ground, and I went running over to him to see if he was okay. And I I looked, that was his and I's real, our first connection on screen, and I looked back, and I think it was Quark that was back there, and I just knew that we were going to stand up to him for all time, no matter how long it took. And, you know, I think in those moments, we we started this movement for justice that frankly ended in the second to last episode of Deep Space Nine, when Rom became Grand Nagus, and you knew that things were going to change. Not only was, and was a little bit of a segue, but it does tie directly back into Bar Association. Not only do we know that Rom the little runt brother gets to be the top Ferengi and what a wonderful comeback that is, but that justice is going to take place on Ferenginar and that people won't be abused and financially downtrodden over, you know, trod over that there will be, you know, there will be good things happening for everybody because that's the kind of guy Rom is. So, um, yeah, those are my fond thoughts of, of our association. There are many, many of them, but th- that was, that's what I'd mainly say. Yeah, Ron would have made Sean Aloysius O'Brien very proud. Workers of the world unite. That's my terrible Ron yeah, impersonation. Exactly. That, w- that was good, though. Oh, thank Workers you. <laughs> <of course> unite. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, you've, you've had a lot more practice. You've actually been around the man. <laughs> I, well, you know, we, we, it, 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 you get to know how to, how to rom it. <laughs> So Joey Sheets asked, did you know where Lita was going to end up? Where did you think her story was going to end versus ultimately how it did end? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you so much for your question, Joey. You know, because Lita didn't have a contract, because I didn't have a contract, <laughs> there was nothing that we could do uh, or no no way we could count on anything. So it was almost scary to think or dream or hope what the end would be. I just hoped to keep being on the show. Um, but, you know, they could have killed Rita off. War is cruel. They killed Rial off because that made a huge point about the devastation of of war, you know, for the chief warmonger, Goldicott, to lose his daughter. You know, they, they could have made a point like that with Lita. And yet, I think, I hope, the audience would have hated that <laughs> enough to where they they may not have, you know, or they where they wouldn't have. I, I didn't know. I never would have dreamed Rom would become the Grand Nagus and I would become First Lady. Um, I I love that ending so much for us. So people ask, what are Lita and Rom doing now? And I think, well, I don't know. But I think that, frankly, 
I'll say what I think. I think Lita is the Michelle Obama of Ferenginar, making justice happen and helping girls get educated and girls wear, girls and women wear clothing and um, helping, you know, people who don't have uh, the opportunities that they would have had to, to get the opportunities. Maybe I also have a clothing shop. Lita's Secret is like the Victoria's <laughs> Secret of Ferenginar. I don't know. Uh, I like that um, answer. You'd make Moogie very proud. Oh, um, <laughs> thank you. And this conversation wouldn't be complete without me saying how much we miss Cecily Adams. She was such a wonderful movie and, uh, it was wonderful working with her and, uh, and how much we miss Aaron. It was, it really still isn't real to us. It, it doesn't seem real that he's gone. We were just with him you know, not long at all, less than two months or so before he passed. And it just doesn't seem real. It really um, completely threw, uh, rocked our our world off. We're still good friends with Aaron's wife, Melissa. Um, I'll be uh, bringing her, we'll be bringing her to the Las Vegas convention in December uh, through creation and she'll be staying with me. Um, and creation is going to give her a table and, uh, I'll have an extra room and we're keeping her close. We really adore her. And, uh, she's, she's family. She's dear to our hearts. So yeah, it's really hard. Yeah. We actually had a few folks asking about Aaron Eisenberg and, uh, what's your favorite moment you ever had with Aaron Eisenberg on set? On set, you know, Aaron, if there was a jokester, it would be Aaron. Um, Aaron and Sirach had so much fun. They were really the fun element of Deep Space Nine. People often ask, were there practical jokes? And, you know, what was that energy like? What was the fun stuff? And, and I have to say, that really wasn't the energy of Deep Space Nine, except for Aaron. Um, he, he laughed so hard and would make us all laugh so hard about uh, the, the story of self Self-sealing stembolts. Self-sealing stembolts. Self-sealing stembolts. The tongue twister of the Star Trek universe. Yes. Do, do, have you heard Aaron's story on that? Or I, I, I haven't. I'd love to hear it. Well, it was just that it took them like forty-seven takes to do this scene, and for some reason, just he and Sarak, they were about to get it right. They they would almost get it right, and then they would just laugh, or they would just screw it up. But you know, they just couldn't do it, and it just got to be this hilarious thing. And you know, there's not a lot of time to joke on television sets because television goes so quickly. You know, um, it's not like film where sometimes you have just more hours in the day to shoot a certain number of pages um, or less pages in a day to shoot. So. Anyway, it, it, Aaron was a gas in those ways. I think he also, he and Sirach did little crazy shtick like pull my finger. And just, <laughs> they made everything fun. And they made the cast laugh. I remember they made Nana laugh so hard. They made Terry laugh. Aaron and Sirach. So, you know, their, their podcast, um, The Seventh Rule, is wildly popular. And it's a great podcast. Um, Anybody who wants more Aaron Eisenberg, I, I would completely uh, say, in addition to his episodes, watch that because he was fun. And uh, it was hard for Ciroc to lose Aaron, um, but but Ciroc is continuing the podcast uh, with Ryan Husk, 
the producer. Anyway, Aaron, we miss you. We do. I'm sad. I never got to meet Aaron and uh, one of my other favorites as well, Renee Abrazawa. I never got to meet him either, but uh, you know, their work lives mm-hmm. on, their legacy lives on. So thank you for their contributions, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Renee is too. Renee certainly had an incredible body of work and uh, was, was loved by so many. And yeah, shout out again to the Seventh Rule Podcast. We love their work. Uh, if you guys ever check out their Facebook page, in fact, you'll see if you look way back when they kind of first began, uh, I actually made a digital painting for them, uh, which actually has Aaron. It's got a bunch of the, the guys in it, Ryan, and uh, it's called The Search for Ciroc, because this was, I guess, early towards the episodes where uh, Ciroc was usually late to the episode or sometimes missed a few of them, I guess, early on. So yeah, fun little note for you guys out there. Seventh Rule, though, check them out for sure. The Search for Ciroc, that's hysterical. I never heard that. That's so funny. Yeah, I did like basically a parody poster uh, in the style of the Search for Spock poster for them. <laughs> that is so... You did the poster? Yeah, I, I had some time at work one day because, uh, well, you know, now, I'm not at work there anymore, but I can say this now freely. But yeah, at the time I was working at a place where I had a pretty fair amount of free time. And so uh, I took that time to practice my uh, digital drawing skills in Photoshop. And I ended up doing this whole big poster of the Search for Ciroc with Ciroc's head being this like giant blue orb in space. Uh, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I'm glad they liked it. I'm, I'm sure they got a kick out of it. That is so fun. I'm, I'm, I gotta look that up. That's very, very fun. <laughs> so on that note of the fun stuff, though, uh, Terry Taylor has a question for you about that, and uh, he wanted to know if you guys ever made up fake rules to Dabo to play with the cast, since there's often a lot of downtime on television sets. Uh, was that a thing you guys did, or were there any other games or inside jokes or pranks that the cast and crew like to play on each other? You know, like I said, there weren't a lot of inside jokes or or games like that. And unfortunately, uh, and thank you for the question, Terry, we did not make up rules for Dabo. And that is crazy to me because, you know, obviously Paramount is the ultimate Ferengi and they would want to make money off of Dabo. (laughs) I can't understand why they never made an actual Dabo game, but they didn't. And that's okay. I did have a fan, a wonderful friend fan. dear friend, really, um, named Daniel Schechter, who has since passed, who made a Dabo game, and we would take it and play it for charity. And uh, we took it to a, a few conventions and devised little rules around it and where the ball would stop and all that. But uh, but Paramount-wise, no, we, it doesn't exist. Um, I have actually made a request that we create a Dabo game for the cruise which I think would be a blast. And just this is my my uh, my little commercial for Star Trek The Cruise. It's a blast. It's so much fun. It's unfortunately not happening in 2021, but I'll be uh, I'll be back. I, I can't talk too much about that, but I do really uh, encourage anybody who can take the time uh, and has the means to to do Star Trek Cruise. It's it's wonderful. Anyway, about Dabo, I digress. Um, no rules for Dabo. And frankly, when the camera stopped rolling, just make sure that my makeup was okay, that my uh, hair was okay. That, you know what I mean? You just want to make sure that you that you stay ready, you know, that you got your lines down, that you work the scene with the other actors. So, yeah, not a lot of goofing around on, on the Star Trek set. I can tell you a couple funny things that happened, if you'd like. Sure. There's one story. Okay, there's one story where um, Nana was coming out of her trailer, and she unfortunately slipped. And she fell. And so they said, oh, just stay there, stay on the ground, don't move, we're going to get the medics. And, you know, clearly the Paramount medics don't watch every show that Paramount shot because the medics came running and the crowd parts and they took one look at her and they said, oh my God, your nose. 
it's like, well, thanks for watching. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, I, you know, I wish I could think of jokey things, but there, there wasn't a lot of jokery on, on the Star Trek set. They're just on, on the Deep Space Nine set. There just wasn't. I've always heard that from a lot of folks who've been on, let's say like TNG or Voyager as well as Deep Space Nine. And they've all said that DS9 totally, it was like a much more serious show. And they said like in particular, Avery kind of drove that. She wanted everybody to be very much like they were his crew, very much like it was an actual ship. Uh, did you find that experience yeah. Avery at all? I do think that that is how it went. And whether or not it was Avery, I, you know, I think even if Avery had been a jokey person, the rest of the cast is not so jokey. I mean, they're very powerful people, very strong people, but not in the jokey way, you know, um, more in, uh, I wouldn't say especially incredibly introverted way, you know, they're, they're, they're friends, they, they have a lot to say, but they're also not the jokey extroverts that you could say Garrett Wong or some of the other you know, they're not Ethan Phillips. They're just a quieter bunch. So whether or not it was driven by Avery, who's definitely quiet and very serious, or it was driven by the rest of the cast. And it also could be driven by the gravity of the show. You know, this is a show that was consistently about boldly going. More than any of the other treks, I believe, Deep Space Nine was about boldly going, not into you know, where no man has gone before, but into ourselves, which is even scarier, into the human psyche, into our relationships, into the conflicts and the joys of the characters, um, of of the relationships Very and of true. the issues. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. Of the issues of, of war and peace and what it means to be human, what it, what it means to do the right thing, taking a risk being there for someone even though you can't stand them <laughs> being there for someone who you can see the good in even if no one else can integrity and loss and values and fun but you know it was i believe the darkest star trek uh of of its time um there's plenty of dark on the new shows um, but Deep Space Nine was cutting edge in that way. And I don't know if you all know, but Deep Space Nine was the first syndicated show of its time. It was a show that the networks argued with. They did not want to, I'm sorry, I don't know if, what did I just say, syndicated, um, serialized. Deep Space Nine was the first serialized show of its time. And the network had a, an argument with uh, Michael Piller and Rick Berman and, and uh, basically and Ira Bear about having it be a show where it could trust and count on audiences to tune in week after week. That's what you had to do. If you missed a week at Deep Space Nine, sure, there would be this last week on Deep Space Nine, but it wouldn't be the kind of, you know, you really did have to follow this show. Whereas with other shows, if you did follow, there would be some bonus, but it also wouldn't, completely let you not understand or, you know, feel like you were lost. That, again, takes a lot of trust in an audience. And for that show to be on at 2 o'clock in the morning, depending on your um, your syndication zone, you know, it being syndicated made it even more difficult to watch. So 
So Ira Bear told us during the fifth season, he had this prescient understanding about what was going to be happening technically with the internet. And he said, this show will be more popular 20 years after it's off the air than it is right now because more people will have access to it and they'll be able to see it when it's convenient in ways that are convenient. And he's right. Yeah, it's very true. And we have, we have people coming up all the time saying, it's my first time watching DS9 and I love it. And it's, it's so wonderful to hear the show holds up. So kudos to Ira and the rest of his team for making such a powerful piece of work. Yeah, it really is. And Deep Space Nine is easily my favorite of the Trek series. They're all great, but DS9 is mine. And one of the things I love so much about it is that growth and evolution of all the characters. And uh, Chase, I'd like to actually kind of expand uh, on that idea a little bit here, because as an actor, we know that performers will often create a backstory for their characters to help them understand the role better and to internalize it more. And Lita was, again, one of those characters who, as we talked about in this past hour, has really evolved from when she first appeared to how things ended for her. And you know, I, spe- I especially feel like initially at the beginning, she was almost meant to be a passive character to kind of counter the strong women we saw like Kira and Dax. But of course, as it turns out, no one on Deep Space Nine is ever a passive character in any way. And we come to realize that Lita, while she might be more attractive, let's say, than the average person, she's equally as strong, equally as intelligent, and an equal as a partner to Rom, not just a marriage, but giving him the confidence and strength to build himself up. So for you as an actress, did you create a history or something internally for Lita when you first began the role? And what did her story become as the series went on for you and she became this more fleshed out human being character? Thank you for asking. That's a wonderful question. Um, As a theater actress, I am used to having lots of time and, uh, and the drive to create character detail and depth. And for Lita... I thought I, I I had Lita as a Bajoran war orphan. Um, I had Lita as being basically uh, wisely rescuing herself from a terrible occurrence where her parents and community was killed and she was smart enough to escape. And I believe that um, I, I had it where Lita is working to make some money and somehow take off and make a better life and do something good for the world so that that doesn't keep on happening. Um, But, you know, at the time, Lita couldn't go back to Bajor. And where could Lita go? Well, the station was safe. And I was able to, um, I was able to be on that. Uh, I I, I think it's, you know, (laughs) I mean, what happened with Bajor and, and, and the whole issue of the war on DS9 really leads us to think about the people and the people and, and the individual stories of war. You know, it's not just bombings that happen. It's a person, a woman, a child, a man that, that they happen to and to to be to bring faith to that on television was really, really an honor. I like that interpretation of the character, and it kind of reminds me of uh, how I used to actually think about this show when I was a kid, in fact. Um, I always felt like Deep Space Nine was almost like an allegory to the Israel-Palestine conflict. Uh, I don't know if anybody else ever felt yeah. that way, but that was something I kind of felt as, just time-wise as well. It kind of worked out. Uh, I, I don't know. Is that ever yeah. something that occurred to you? It, it has, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's tragic what has happened to, to Palestine personally 
you know, I think, I think that the credo of, of, uh, of Roddenberry's, of the prime directive of not interfering with other civilizations is such an important one. And as I see that credo violated, um, in, in, in Palestine and, and so many other places and so many other ways, uh, it, it's heartbreaking. So Amanda Morrison would like to know what your favorite episode of D Space Nine is. And we kind of talked about uh, the episode Bar Association a lot today, but let's even talk about outside of the episodes of Just Lita. What was your favorite episode of DS9 in general? And Amanda also wanted to know if you've ever watched the entire series, which, you know, it's a good question, I think, because it's not uncommon for an actor who was in a show to not necessarily want to rewatch that show. Uh, have you ever binged or just watched the entire series before? I have not rewatched it. I think it would be a wonderful thing. And I, I feel badly that I have not rewatched it. Um, it. It's on my list to do. Frankly, I spend so much time working on Pop Culture Hero Coalition every, pretty much every, I wouldn't say spare minute, but every possible minute. And so um, I think if I were to watch it, I, I would really want to carve out the time to watch it in succession. And that, that is going to take some time. So thank you, Amanda. That's, that's a good reminder of something I've been wanting to do. Um, there are so many incredible episodes and, um, you know, I, the classic episodes that people say far beyond the stars, of course, was so incredible in terms of both Avery's performance and the whole zeitgeist of that episode. Um, Oh, now I'm I'm having a a mind blank. What was the episode where they walked through the, the homeless? Past tense. Past tense, right? What an incredibly powerful episode, and that was so beautifully detailed. Well, not detailed, but it mentioned in what we left behind the incredible documentary that Ira created for uh, as as uh, as a look back at Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. And, you know, the ways that this writing team checked the boxes of different types of social justice, um, I think I think that was a very powerful and very important episode. Homelessness in Los Angeles is worse than it was 20 years ago by far. Social justice has, has taken new turns, some for better, some for worse uh, since that time. But, uh, you know, those episodes that... Uh, and unfortunately, I don't remember all of the names of the episodes, but those episodes were really prescient and really important. And I think a huge part of why fans love Star Trek in general. I know I'm getting really off the subject here, but one of my favorite overall episodes of Star Trek ever was the very first one where Spock stood up for Pike and was in you know, on his team and standing up for his right to, uh, or his possibility of being whole and, and healthy again, so much so that it would have cost Spock his life, of course, court-martialed and death penalty. And uh, as, if I'm remembering right. Um, yep. I think that's the menagerie and, you're talking about. And, yeah, the menagerie. Yeah. And, um, you know, right, right at that point, right then, out of the box, Roddenberry was saying, this is what this show is about. It's about risk and honor and doing the right thing. And it's not, it's not courage. I don't know. There's so many moments of Deep Space Nine. It's hard to pick. Hard to pick. Well, you mentioned a few good ones for sure. I mean, Past Tense is a really wonderful pair of episodes. And uh, 
Far Beyond the Stars, of course, another real fan favorite. So those are pretty good ones off the top of your head. Sorry, I don't remember all of the names that I want to say right now. Uh, I remember some, you know, also some on the other end of the spectrum. I think part of what was so great about Deep Space Nine is that it did provide the comic relief that is necessary when you have such heavy episodes. So, you know, for instance, teaching Quark how to be a woman. It doesn't get any better than that. Uh, right? I was going to ask you about Lace and Prophet because that is a fine, fine, hilarious episode. Yep. You got to tell me a few stories about working on Lace and Prophet. Prophet and Lace, you got to tell me a little bit about that episode. Well, directed by Alexander Siddig, uh, featuring uh, Quark with breasts, basically, and uh, made out of bird seed. And everyone on the <laughs> cast and crew had to go up and touch them, of course. Um, you know, some of my favorite moments ever were working with Wally Shawn. What a gem of a human. What a gem of an actor. What an incredible, fun, delightful, magical guy. Um, he really uh, he, he really is a huge amount of fun and, and, and stole my heart in, in his Wally way uh, <laughs> while we were working on, on the show. Um, and such an incredible actor as well. What he did with with uh, Grand Nagus Zex was so much fun. And there's a story where I wasn't there, but it's told where he was sitting at Armin's house uh, at a table read for his very first episode. And as they were beginning, he said, in all seriousness, I wonder if I should use a character voice. <laughs> oh, Wally. I think that's what they said. Oh, Wally. That's pretty weird. I love Wallace Shawn also. He's so, he was perfect to be Grand Nagus Zek. Really, there's no one else I could think of that could have played that role better than him. No one, no one on earth, really. And and he was so wonderfully, delightfully, but innocently, but kind of creepily leering at Lita. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, and it just, he was magic. I adored him. And he had such great chemistry and timing with Cecily. It was a lot of fun. All right, so I've got one last fan question for you today, and that's from Paul Dravas. And I'm, again, Paul, I don't know if I'm saying your name right, so I apologize for that. But Paul, uh, Paul wants to ask, it, do you see any of the characters, themes, or settings, or storylines from D Space Nine continued onto Star Trek Picard or any other new upcoming Trek shows? Could I see it happening? Well, I'll tell you. There was a sign to Quarks in an episode of Picard. Picard. That's true. There was, so, yes. Yep. So, did you see that? I did. That was uh, the episode where he goes undercover, which is a real fun episode. Yep. So, it's possible that we could go to Quarks at some point. I don't know if that was just a nod or if that's something they're setting up for the long term i'd love it i absolutely love it i also know that i am grateful and honored to have what we had and if there's never any more there's certainly been way more than i thought there would be way more than i could have asked or expected um so that's that's where i stand on that it would be nice but <laughs> i'm not counting on it all right well chase thank you so much for answering all these questions that were submitted today by listeners and my apologies to anybody who did submit a question and you didn't hear it today. Uh, you know, there's only so much time we have with Chase today. But, you know, if you guys out there listening want to ask any future guests a question, please make sure you're following us at Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. But hopefully, you know, Chase will have you back on the show another time and maybe we can ask you some more questions from fans. And I'm, I've got plenty as well. So hopefully we'll have that happen. Thank you. And, uh, you know, conventions are hopefully going to resume as well sometime in the next year or so. And I'm, I'm hoping more so that these folks listening today can meet you in person and ask you face-to-face. -face. That would be a blast. In the meantime, um, I really want to say thank you for your time, Matthew, for doing this wonderful show where you celebrate the people that aren't in the opening credits. And um, as we say, you know, it, it really does take a village. It takes a team uh, from the guy, you know, the guy sweeping the floor 
on any of our jobs is just as important as the CEO or the star. And it's always just really important to see the humanity and celebrate the hard work of everyone that's involved in any project. So thank you. So Chase, I was also doing a ton of research for this interview, trying to figure out what to ask you, because there's so much I could ask you about. But the one thing I was surprised to find, and this is a fairly recent thing, is that you did a TED Talk, which is called How to Be More Powerful Than You Can Possibly Imagine, which, yes, folks, that is a reference to a different sci-fi fan franchise. We're going to acknowledge it just this once today because it's Chase. Um, and you also mm-hmm. did a talk at Google a month later with a similar theme that's called BAM, Discover Your Superpowers. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what these talks are all about? Thank you so much. These talks chronicle my personal hero's journey out of severe depression and a horrific stalking incident that was uh, instigated by a, a Star Trek fan. I am horrified to say, but my life prevailed and um, it was an incredibly difficult thing to go through. It involved a lawsuit. A fan listed me on a huge international dating service without without my knowledge or consent and listed pictures of me and a list of my acting credits and it listed my then home address and listed disgusting sexual lies and I subsequently received um, threats on my life and my son's life and it was horrifying and um, life-changing and heartbreaking and that's all I really want to say but um, it chronicles my journey through that to uh, and through extreme extreme depression and hopelessness to mentoring ex-gang members at Homeboy Industries as an act of post-traumatic growth and then to founding the coalition uh, because these stories have these stories of pop culture have incredible resonance, as we've discussed. These stories are transcendent, and they teach us basically how to be heroes. They teach us what's important. They, they, they help us to determine our values. And if we let them, they can teach us heroism. So it was about my own journey of heroism for myself and for other people. So that's in, uh, in that TED Talk. Uh, I talk about founding the coalition. That's the and, pop culture uh, hero coalition, right? Yeah, I, I talk about founding Pop Culture Hero Coalition, which is the first ever organization to use stories from TV, film, and comics to make a stand for empathy and real-life heroism over bullying, racism, misogyny, LGBTQI plus bullying, cyberbullying, and other forms of... It's also about mental health, because mentally healthy people don't bully each other. Mentally healthy people support each other's rights and aren't afraid to allow people to have their own rights just as we have ours. And this work is incredibly important to me. It takes the work that we do on screen and takes it farther to really impact the world. And I believe that Roddenberry, if he were alive today, would be doing work that's similar to this, making, uh, making social just happen, just, excuse me, I believe that Roddenberry, if he were alive today, would be doing work similar to this, making social justice happen on screen, but also in real life. So check out our work at popculturehero.org and check us out on Facebook and Twitter at Superhero IRL or Superhero in Real Life IRL. And um, we also do this work uh, crowdsourced with empathy and people um, support this work which uh, 
we do this work teaching empathy in schools. Um, we also have done this work in Comic-Cons because there's a lot of people who've been bullied that go to Comic-Cons and need our support. And we do this work also in children's hospitals. And we have been doing this since 2013. Our work has expanded greatly. I have spoken about it at the World Anti-Bullying Forum and the World, uh, I'm sorry, the International Bullying Prevention Association, in addition to uh, the TED Talk, which is called How to Be More Powerful Than You Can Possibly Imagine. Yes, sorry, guys, it is an Obi-Wan quote. But I We're going to let it slide just out. today. Just today. Um, it, it's, a, it's a powerful talk, and about 170,000 people have watched it. And uh, I did another talk at Google. Um, about, uh, as you said, on the same subject. So I, I encourage you guys to, to check out our, our work out uh, online and check out the talk. And uh, if you'd like to support our work, um, I will let you know I am fully volunteer. I've never made a dime off of this work. All of it goes into creating our programs. Uh, we hire psychologists and veteran educators to create these programs and, um, and see them through in schools. And we do that by selling Be Kind t-shirts. So um, it's if that's a message you can support and get behind and you want to help make this work happen, uh, again, uh, let's make it a world where we can all live long and prosper. You can buy a T-shirt and support on BeKindMerch.org. Yeah, I urge all my listeners to check out the website. And, of course, after this episode is done, do check out the TED Talk on YouTube so you can hear everything that Chase has to say. It's really very moving, and I thank you for your honesty and openness in that uh, talk as well. And I got to tell you, when I watched it, and there was this, this one line you said that was so powerful, and that was, hurt people, hurt people, healed people, heal people. I really, that, that's, that, I get chills just saying it out loud, too. That's a really great thing to say. Well, thank you. That is true. And we want to make sure that we can help people heal. I think all of us have experienced that. You know, we have a rotten day, we go home, and we are in a crappy mood, and we end up, you know, being short or hurting someone's feelings or you know, not being our best self. And that can happen on big, big levels in society for hurt people to hurt people. But I also know as someone who has been a hurting person and now is a healed person that once you've been healed and you, you, you let me tell you something. This is maybe the most important thing I've said in this whole podcast. If you've been hurt by bullying, it was never your fault. And please know that. Anyone who's been out there who has been invalidated or hurt, made fun of, excluded, any of those things, that was never about you. That was all about the fact that hurt people hurt people. That was all about the fact that the bully has pain inside that they don't know what to do with, and their only choice is to let it out, uh, or the only choice they made to let it out. They had a choice to heal. They had a choice to do other things, but the choice they made was to let it out. And that's a poor choice. It's an unfortunate choice, but it's not your fault. And I stand so firmly on that. And if you can do that, if you can separate that, just like you take anything, any piece of garbage that's handed to you and throw it away. You don't have to adopt it. You don't have to eat it. You don't have to carry it in your heart. Just throw that garbage away, right? And learning to do that is a process. And that's what we're teaching kids in schools. We're teaching kids resilience. And we're also teaching empathy to the bullies so that this cycle doesn't keep happening. We're finding out why the bullies have so much pain. Maybe they're abused at home. Maybe there's some issues like that. There's a lot of deep-rooted psychological reasons for injustice, both on the childhood level and on the societal level. But I believe if we can quench it 
stop it, what, uh, maybe quench isn't the right word. I believe if we can stop it on a childhood level, that will also lead to us stopping it on a societal level. That will help us to stop injustice in the workplace, in relationships, in terrorism and inequality and racism and war. If we can teach children to be kind, we can really have the kind of world we want. So this work is very important. And uh, anybody who'd would like to be a part, would like to support, if you're a teacher and you'd like this work in your school, uh, please um, follow us online, email us, info at popculturehero.org, and, uh, and we can talk more about it. So once again, folks, you guys can check out popculturehero.org if you'd like to learn more about the Pop Culture Hero Coalition. And of course, you guys should also check out Chase in Unbelievable, which is available on Amazon Prime. And we're going to have links to all of the stuff we talked about today in the show notes. So do make sure you take a look at all of those, especially Chase's TED Talk. So Chase, thank you so much today for uh, taking all the time to answer our fan questions, chat with all of our listeners, and uh, just for being so open and sharing so many great stories and sharing all the things you've been doing today and, and beyond. So thank you so much for that. Matthew, thank you for what you do with this podcast, recognizing uh, people, and also just for your, your way as a host. You've been wonderful to work with. I really appreciate this opportunity. And thank you to all the fans out there. You mean so much to me, and I hope you keep in touch. Um, follow me on at Chase Masterson and uh, say hello, and I'll say hello back, okay? Love you guys. That was our discussion with Chase Masterson, who was beyond gracious for chatting with us today. Chase went above and beyond for this episode and stayed way longer than she was originally scheduled to do so because she wanted to make sure she answered as many of your questions as possible. So do make sure you follow Chase on social media and go ahead and tag her to show your gratitude for how much she gave to you fans out there today. I greatly look forward to having another chat with Chase sometime and maybe doing the typical format we do here in Trek Untold. So keep your ears open for that one. And on a side note we didn't get a chance to discuss today, among the many charitable things that Chase Masterson has done, she's also responsible for making a certain DC Comics character a global UN ambassador. In March 2016, Chase lobbied for Wonder Woman to become a UN ambassador to promote and empower more young people using stories that were more relatable to them. There were some protests from within the UN ambassadors about whether or not this fictitious character was indeed the right choice to make for this type of role. But ultimately, Chase prevailed, and a campaign with Wonder Woman began that went on until about the end of that year. It's really amazing how much good work Chase and the Pop Culture Hero Coalition has accomplished so far. And if you'd like to be a part of them or help support their efforts, please visit popculturehero.org. And a reminder, you can see Chase in her latest film, Unbelievable, alongside dozens of other Star Trek actors right now on Amazon Prime and other video-on-demand platforms. We'll have links in the show notes where you can watch the film, as well as ways to follow Chase and help support her cause. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. Please make sure you follow us on social media to see all of our memes and daily guest updates. And who knows what else, because you never know what pops up on our pages. All you have to do is look for Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and hear what you think about this week's episode. If you'd like to support this podcast, check out patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn how you can keep our ship operating at full power. You can also check out some of our merchandise at teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold. That's T-E-E spring.com. That includes shirts, stickers, mugs, phone cases, and a whole lot more. 
But most importantly, if you haven't already, please subscribe to this show and give us a review and rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. If you enjoy what we do here every week on this show, please give us a five-star rating and review. It's the best way to make new listeners discover this podcast and help us grow. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. If you'd like to send us some feedback, suggest a guest, would like to be booked on the show, or are interested in sponsoring us, email me at trekuntold at gmail.com. Once again, this has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold. <laughs>